It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Now over 70 years old, some consider the 1947 Roswell incident one of the most important UFO cases in history. Is there still anything new that can be learned from the case now that most of the first-hand witnesses have passed on? Was Roswell really the start of the U.S. government's truth embargo on the subject of UFOs? Did the U.S. government really recover debris and bodies from a crashed spacecraft north of the town of Roswell? If so, where was the crash debris moved to, and what did the government learn from it? Why was there a newspaper article released saying the military had captured a flying disc, only to later retract the story? Longtime Roswell investigator and author Tom Carey has been investigating the Roswell incident for over 30 years now. Tom joins me tonight as we look back at what may be one of the most important and compelling events of the 20th century. Well, greetings and welcome, friends and fellow truth seekers. You are listening to Passion for the Paranormal, bringing a passion for the paranormal to you. So excited to be bringing you tonight's episode uh, as we journey back over 70 years to a case that uh, some consider one of the most important cases in UFO history, and that is of the 1947 Roswell incident. And... Uh, so many uh, interesting aspects to this case, and uh, Tom Carey has been investigating this case for well over 30 years, and uh, it's so uh, so great to have Tom joining me to be able to talk about what he's learned over, over his 30 years of investigating this case. Uh, so I really think you're going to enjoy tonight's episode, and uh, if you haven't been over to the website, please pay us a visit over there at uh, passion4theparanormal.com. And uh, you can catch up with some past episodes there. You can, uh, if you have a paranormal experience you want to share with us, we'd love to hear it. Uh, you can also check out some new uh, Passion for the Paranormal merchandise of hoodies, T-shirts, and coffee mugs. And uh, if you haven't been over to the Facebook page, please also visit us there at facebook.com slash passion, the number four, the paranormal. Uh, we're also on Twitter at passion, the number four, the para. And uh, if you know of a friend, family member, or a coworker you think would like uh, checking out the show or tuning into it, please share a link with them. 
uh, that is a great way to spread the word and, uh, you know, to let others know about the show if you're enjoying it. All right, uh, so without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and uh, get into this discussion with Tom. And uh, haven't really covered the Roswell case uh, in any other shows. I've talked a little bit about it with other guests. But uh, here we're really going to delve into it. Uh, and Tom has devoted over 30 years of research to this case. So, again, I think you're really going to enjoy tonight's show. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get into this discussion. Okay, so my guest tonight is Thomas Carey. And uh, Tom holds a degree in business administration from Temple, Temple University and an MA in anthropology from California State University. He is an Air Force veteran who held a top secret crypto clearance and is now a retired Philadelphia area businessman. Tom was also a uh, state, state section director for MUFON in southeastern Pennsylvania, a special investigator for the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, and a member of its board of directors. Tom has authored or co-authored more than 40 published articles about the Roswell events and has appeared on a, as a guest on Coast to Coast AM, Fox and Friends, and Larry King Live. He also contributed to a number of Roswell-related documentaries and was a consultant and interviewee on the highly acclaimed two-hour sci-fi channel documentary, The Roswell Crash, Startling New Evidence. His 2007 book, co-authored with Don Smith, Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up, was a number one best-selling UFO book, and its 2009 sequel, Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the Government's Biggest Cover-Up, remains a bestseller. His third book, The Children of Roswell, was released in 2016 and also reached number one in its category. He recently released two additional books related to the Roswell incident, which are UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson and Roswell the Chronological Pictorial. Tom, uh, what a what a resume you have there, and uh, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the show tonight. Nice to be with you, Curry. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, Tom. Uh, I have uh, been fascinated with the uh, Roswell incident going back over 20 years now, uh, and for me, that is really kind of where it all started and where my interest in the UFO subject, I think, really where it whetted my appetite, I would say, for looking into the UFO subject. There was a little book that uh, came out by Philip Corso, uh, The Day After Roswell, I read. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been fascinated with the subject ever since, really have followed it for well over 20 years, not only Roswell incident, but just, uh, you know, the UFO subject in general. Uh, but maybe if you could take us back uh, to how this journey started for you, how you got started, first of all, in researching UFOs and more uh, specifically into the Roswell incident. Okay, Kerry, good question. Um, I became interested in the subject of UFOs when I was a teenager uh, living in Philadelphia. I live in a, uh, Huntington Valley, which is just outside of Philadelphia now. But uh, my older brother uh, used to belong to something called the Science Fiction Book Club. And uh, one of the books he uh, received was a book by the former head of Project Blue Book, Ed Edward Ruppelt. It was called the Report, on Fly the Report on Flying Saucers or the Report on UFOs, something like that. And it lay around the house on the coffee table for a couple months, 
and finally I picked it up and read it and was really fascinated with this subject of UFOs and flying saucers. So, you know, what 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 could these things be? I'm I'm like a young teenager at that point. I read a few books thereafter by uh, Donald E. Kehoe, which in the 1950s and early 60s was probably the uh, most significant promote uh, proponent of the UFOs uh, or of a civilian nature. So uh, I go off to a college, to Temple University, and the subject more or less, you know, went away for me. And uh, I joined the Air Force for four years, and again, uh, I wasn't interested in UFOs at that point because I was busy pulling KP and uh, doing things at the Air Force uh, uh, with a top-secret crypto clearance in uh, cryptography. So when I was out, came, got out of the Air Force, uh, I had become interested in anthropology while I was in the Air Force. Uh, and I went on to get a, a uh, master's degree in anthropology at Cal State Sacramento. And then I went on to the University of Toronto to get my Ph.D. in anthropology. I was there four years, but uh, I, I lacked a dissertation, so I just came up short. And uh, I had a family by that time, and so I moved back to Philadelphia. And uh, I had this excess uh, energy, and uh, by this time I've heard of this organization called MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. So I joined up, and the next thing I know, I'm the state section director for Philadelphia and the four uh, surrounding counties. I, you know, I don't know how that came off, but that's what happened. So I started, uh, we're in the mid-80s now, and uh, so I started investigating local UFO reports. And they were all of the lights in the sky variety. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. You know, I saw a light, it went this way, that way, oh wow, you know. So that, that went on for a couple of years and I just felt that those cases were not uh, leading us to any great the conclusion concerning uh, UFO, UFOs. Um, in 1980, this is uh, even before I joined MUFON, I had read this book called The Roswell Incident. It came out in 1980 by Charles Berlitz and William Moore. And the book really blew me away because we're not talking about lights in the sky. We're not talking about... Uh, strange things uh, that uh, land and then fly away. We're talking about an alleged crash of a physical craft with several bodies, several dead bodies, and perhaps one that was alive. So this case really captured my uh, fascination to the, to the exclusion of the rest of the UFO phenomenon. You know, things like... Uh, you know, crop circles and 
things associated with uh, UFOs, abductions, those, those things didn't interest me. It's this one case. So long about 1990, uh, I had joined a group out of Chicago called the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, called the QFOS for short. And these two fellows, uh, Don Schmidt and Kevin Randall, uh, who were members of QFOS, were reopening the Roswell case. Because after that first book came out in 1980, that was it. There were no more books about the, about the subject. So uh, Randall and Schmidt, where they would have like an article or uh, every issue of the uh, QFOS's uh, publication. I think it was a bi-monthly publication, the International UFO Reporter. And uh, again, these subjects of this crash really fascinated me. So one aspect of the of the story was that the crash was allegedly discovered by a group of archaeologists out of the University of Pennsylvania, which is in Philadelphia. So here I was, uh, basically a an almost uh, almost PhD in anthropology, which includes archaeology. So I, I phoned up Kevin Randall. I said, what have you guys done about finding these archaeologists from the University of Pennsylvania? He said, oh, well, we interviewed a, one or two uh, that weren't from the University of Pennsylvania, but it didn't lead anywhere. I said, well, let me have a crack at it. Uh, I'll go down to the university and see what I can find out. So one Saturday afternoon, I went down to the university uh, library down there and started nosing around, and uh, I discovered the leader of the alleged uh, uh, archaeology crew that found the, the uh, craft, and that's, that's how I got really active. Uh, this is like 1990, 1991. That's where I, when I became a... Uh, a uh, at that point, a sort of an associate uh, investigator for uh, Randall and Schmidt. So what happens is that the case uh, they they write two books together: UFO crash at Roswell in 1991, and then the truth about the UFO crash at Roswell in 1994. So along comes 1997, and if you remember. Perry, that was the 50th anniversary of the Roswell crash. And by this time, it's covered by several of the network, the TV networks. It, the, the term Roswell is known all around the world, and it's really big now. And uh, July of 1997 was sort of the high point of interest in the case. Uh, CNN had covered the big goings-on down in Roswell during the anniversary wall-to-wall uh, -wall coverage. And uh, after, after 1997, most of the investigators left the field, and uh, uh, by that time I was a board member of QFOS. I hooked up with Don Schmidt, who by that time had separated from Kevin Randall. So Don Schmidt and I hooked up as a team, and uh, we became a team in 1998, and we're still a team as I speak tonight. And together, uh, Don and I have co-authored, as we speak, seven books on the Roswell incident that include uh, two on uh, Wright-Patterson, which was involved in the uh, Roswell incident. So uh, last year, 
we had a book come out. Uh, we wrote uh, we wrote three books in the last year and a half. Last year, the UFO Secrets at Wright Patterson came out. It's a best-selling book in the UFO field. Uh, a couple weeks ago, the large coffee table uh, book. Roswell, the Chronological Pictorial. It's got over 400 photo images in it. It's the total timeline of the Roswell crash from the crash up until the present time, as told in uh, bullet points and uh, illustrated by over 400 photo images, most of which I took. Well, you know, a lot of which. Let's, let's say a lot of them I took. And uh, we have a book coming out this year, maybe in two months, called uh, Roswell, The Ultimate Cold Case, The Ultimate Cold Case Closed. So that will be out in uh, about uh, two months. And that brings us current. Interesting. Now, uh, what I wanted to ask you is, now you've been so heavily involved for so many years now investigating Roswell, so going back to the early 90s, has this pretty much been? Has this consumed pretty much all of your UFO research? Once you heavily got involved, one hundred percent. And interesting. Now, the the other question I would have for you is, you know, we've got so much new information coming out, and and in fact, you know, it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff sometimes in the UFO community. Uh, do you kind of feel like? I mean, this has been over seventy years now since this event took place. Do you feel it's kind of lost interest in the UFO community, or do you feel like there's still uh, – I mean, you just don't hear about it near as much as you used to, and I don't know if that's because of, you know, we had the 2017 UFO uh, report that came out, the New York Times report in December 2017. Have you felt like it's lost interest, or do you still feel like there's a lot of interest in it? Well, Kerry, I, I think it was waning until that uh – 2017 uh, video came out from uh, uh, what's his name uh, Elizondo. Yes, to the Stars Academy. Uh, uh, I can't I can't remember his first name. Oh, uh, Luis Elizondo. Yes, that's correct. And uh, that that Navy photograph of the chasing that UFO, I think, has really rekindled because it seems to have the imprimatur of the U.S. Navy, uh, the, although the Navy will not use the term UFOs, they use a UAW, uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, but at least they acknowledge that there's something going on out there and that they have to modify their uh, reporting requirements uh, because they used to just dismiss them, but now they, because of those uh, images that everybody has seen, uh, things have changed. I think uh, when you consider that uh, you have a cable channel, the travel channel, which they're their whole, uh, it used to be a travel channel, but now their entire uh, program offerings are on uh, the paranormal, and a lot of it is UFOs. And, uh, in fact, I will be on one of their shows uh, come uh, this uh, coming June. This will be about the, uh, uh, they tell me it's about the Kecksburg crash in western Pennsylvania in 1980. Was it 80 or 65? I think it was 1965. Yeah, 1965. Kecksburg UFO crash. They were here at my house uh, for a couple hours interviewing me, and that show, I understand, will uh, air on the Travel Channel in June. 
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. UFOs or UFO aliens, something like that, the big show, and uh, the, the, I believe that the interest is on the upswing again, uh, mostly because of that, you know, the, the Navy has now more or less admitted that there's UFOs, even though they don't call them that, and that uh, that video has shown many, has been shown many, many, many times on TV, and a lot of people have seen it. And it's not uh, something that somebody cooked up with a computer. It's a Navy uh, uh, video from, uh, I guess, a fighter jet was tracking it. So yeah, it's actually gun camera footage. Yeah, yeah, it's actually gun camera footage of a of a F-18 tracking, and I think the original one that came out was the 2004 U.S. Nimitz uh, incident. 2004, and the other I think was. 2014 or 15, one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. Right. Uh, and then the other thing is, in this kind of, uh, I know this is, <laughs> I don't know if it's too early to ask this question, but uh, I'm just curious, based on all your research, what level of certainty do you have at this point that UFOs crashed in Roswell and that, you know, similar to what, uh, basically what Stanton Friedman, the conclusion he reached, that UFOs crashed there and and, uh, you know, bodies and, and uh, uh, these craft were recovered. Uh, what degree of certainty do you have that UFOs crashed at Roswell and that those re- craft were recovered by the U.S. military? Uh, 100%. Uh, the, evidence, um, the evidence strongly, strongly suggests a UFO crash with uh, five alien occupants, four of which were dead, one was still alive after the crash, occurred during the first week of July, 1947, uh, near the town of Roswell, New Mexico. There's no, no doubt in my mind that the evidence is too strong for the crash. Uh, the, the Air Force's position is that it was a weather, a type of weather balloon. That, that's absolutely ridiculous. 
uh, and that they, they also say that the bodies that people reported seeing, and we have a lot of witnesses to the bodies, uh, their report was that they were dime store mannequins that people saw 10 years later uh, out in the desert that when the Air Force was conducting these high-altitude uh, test parachute drops uh, in advance of the space program. And uh, they used these dime store mannequins, which uh, we understand from the people involved uh, in that, that the, uh, when these dime store mannequins actually hit the Earth, they, they just flew apart. They just flew apart all, in all directions, not like a body that uh, would, you know, crash in a vehicle. And uh, it's, it's just as ridiculous as the weather balloon story. But that's the Air Force position today. Uh, they say uh, they, it was not a uh, crash of a V-2 rocket, uh, which they were testing back then. It was not the test of a. It was not the crash of a uh, top secret aircraft that they might have been testing. None of that. It was not a uh, an atomic bomb or anything like that. And uh, if you call up the Air Force today, uh, they don't want to talk about it. They will, but they still stand by this. Uh, weather balloon is a modified weather balloon array called project mogul which is ridiculous and uh, the uh, dime store mannequins uh, explanation so how do, how do you mix up 10 years after the event with the uh, 1947 they said well the all those witnesses had something called uh, they were afflicted with something called time compression that as you age you tend your your time reference tends to compress and so when they allegedly saw one of these dime store mannequins uh, in the desert, if they did, in the 1950s, they confused it with the 1940s because of this affliction of time compression. And it only seems to involve uh, pro-Roswell witnesses. Yes, interesting point there. And the other point I want to make is uh, – you know, how has the Air Force, well, I guess it's more of a question, how has the Air Force answered the issue with releasing the, putting out the press release that uh, a UFO crashed at Roswell, and, and, you know, that was put out in the Roswell, I think a local Roswell paper and then later retracted. From your research, yeah. how did the Air Force answer that? You know, uh, Curry, that's one of the, that's one of the, issues that my co-author and I, we, we, we agree on most everything except that issue. The newspaper, the Roswell Daily Record, on July the 8th, 1947, this is after the, they sent the uh, intelli base intelligence officer out to the crash site uh, on the 6th, and he gets back on the 8th, and uh, so out comes in the afternoon Roswell Daily Record, which is an afternoon paper, it still is, the headline was RAAF, and that's not the RAF from World War II fame, and it's not the Royal, uh, the, uh, uh, the Royal Air Force, it's, it's the Roswell Army Airfield, RAAF captures, they use the word capture, captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. And that's how it became known as the Roswell crash, because it was actually closer to the town of Corona, but because of that headline, it's known as the Roswell crash. 
so the first day out, they said that the, it was a flying saucer. They used that term. The uh, the base south of town near Roswell, they captured a flying saucer. Well, the very next day, July the 9th, the story changes. It says, "Oh, it wasn't a it wasn't a flying saucer. It was a weather balloon." Now the the outfit that found the, the craft and the bodies was the 509th Bomb Group, located at Roswell Army Airfield. That was a group that uh, dropped the two atomic bombs on Japan to end World War II. Now, if they can't tell the difference between a spaceship that has traveled between solar systems and a common weather balloon, I don't know that I want their finger on the atomic bomb, you know. (laughs) Uh, But uh, the story is, the, the, the bone of contention is, did that original story about the flying saucer, did that originate locally with the base commander at Roswell, or was that a plot that was hatched in Washington, D.C., and filtered down through the chain of command to put that story out, then to take it away the next day and make everybody feel silly? Uh my own view is that it was the local faux pas by the base commander that he put the story out thinking that it was, you know, this is, uh, this is what happened. But the other side of it is, well, in the military chain of command, it, it's, most, it, it's likely that it has, things like that would have to go up the chain of command for, for permission. So uh, my co-author, Don Schmidt, believes the latter uh, that it was a plot hatched in Washington, D.C., why I believe it was a local faux pas by the base commander, uh, William Blanchard, uh, who was a colonel. So it is a, uh, nevertheless, it did happen. And if it was, if it, if it was hatched in Washington, D.C., why did the, the uh, deputy commander of uh, SAC, the Strategic Air Command, under which the 509th was operating, why did he call up the command, the uh, local commander, and chew him out for that story? It seems to me, if it was hatched in Washington, why why would they chew out the the, the commander for following orders? That that to me doesn't make sense. But it, it's a there, you know there's no there's no hard and fast answer to your question. There are those two trains of thought, and I I believe one, and my co-author believes the other. Do you know how many? No, I know most of, or if not all, the first-hand witnesses have probably passed on. Uh, but how many first-hand witnesses, as you've done your research over the years, actually saw something strange in the sky in the, in the sky that night? Do you know how many, roughly? You know, we we've never we've never sat down and counted them up, but there's a lot, a lot of first-hand, uh, more second-hand, because the first-hand. Uh, they're, they're all dead now. Well, I'm sorry, there's one There's one that we know of is still alive. Out of all the witnesses that we've interviewed uh, of a first-hand nature, we only know of one that's still alive, and he's in a nursing home in Roswell with uh, dementia. So, essentially, there may be some out there that we never, you know, didn't know of, didn't contact, and we don't know. That, that they may still be alive because we don't know of them. 
but uh, of the first ten, there's there's uh, there there are all I can tell you is that there are a lot. We have more than when you add our first and second hand witnesses together. There's over six hundred. We have over six hundred. Wow. So uh, that's a pretty pretty uh, staggering total. And let me tell you, Kerry, not one of them points to a balloon explanation. Uh, for the case, not one out of 600, uh, uh, roughly 600 first and second hand witnesses. Yeah, you mentioned in the, uh, you know, I just kind of gleaned over the uh, the new book, and you you reference a lot of uh, UFO sightings that happened leading up to the Roswell incident, uh, and uh, a lot of them, you know, Los Alamos is one of them. Uh, what what do you think the interest was in that area with Los Alamos and uh, Roswell Army Airfield? The Roswell incident occurred roughly two weeks after the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which was sort of the uh, t- the kickoff for the modern age of UFOs. Uh, uh, the, the Arnold sighting was June twenty fourth, uh, nineteen forty seven in near Mount Rainier in Washington State. And all of a sudden, everybody started seeing these things in the sky. And lo and behold, two weeks later, you have the Roswell incident. And it was a two-day story. And uh, the, the weather balloon account killed the story right there. And it lay dormant for the next 31 years. But uh, the question is, why... If I understand you right, Curry, you're asking why all of a sudden would the UFOs be heading towards uh, the United States or the planet Earth? And uh, we we don't know. All we can do is speculate that maybe uh, uh, with the arrival of the atomic bombs detonations, maybe that set off something. We don't we don't know. But all of a sudden, uh, all these uh, UFOs uh, started appearing, and uh, some of them are still unexplained. Uh, you know, they had the even before the the Kenneth Arnold sighting, they had that Maury Island case a couple weeks before uh, Kenneth Arnold, and uh, I think they ultimately called that a hoax. But nevertheless, it was an interesting case. There was there was no precedent for it. And uh, then you have the Kenneth Arnold case. So uh, Roswell right, uh, happened right in that time frame. Uh, at that point, you might say that the cover-up began when they covered up the Roswell case because the, the military was, was totally baffled uh, at, as to what was going on. These things in the sky that seemed to outperform our, our most advanced uh, jet aircraft, uh, they which couldn't keep up with them, and they made these right-angle turns and stuff like that. So uh, uh, then along comes Roswell, and first they say it's a flying saucer, then they say, oh, it's a weather balloon. And the story was killed at that point in the press, but you had all these first-hand witnesses that knew better. And uh, they they used very, in some cases, brutal tactics to silence the civilian people who who was at who were at the crash scene because the ranchers got there first uh, the corona ranchers and the ranchers outside of roswell they got to the crash site before the military and they had to be uh, dealt with to keep keep them silent and they were they were offered death threats 
if they uh, spoke about it, that they would be killed and their families would be killed. Uh, so uh, it, it killed the story because uh, the press was no longer interested in it. And the military, of course, you just you give an order and you say, yes, sir. And so in the military, they said, what do you think happened? Uh, uh, this, uh, what do you think happened out there didn't happen. And if you want to read about it, you can read about it in Leavenworth Prison. So that was the threat to the military. So the story died for 31 years before a fellow by the name of Jesse Marcel, who was the base intelligence officer back in 1947 that Colonel Blanchard sent out to investigate the, uh, the, the wreckage that uh, the rancher Mac Braswell had uh, brought into town. Uh, he broke his silence. He was dying of emphysema, and he was a ham operator. And on his little ham network, he, they, they started talking about flying saucers, and he finally said, well, you know, back in 47, uh, I handled uh, wreckage, pieces of wreckage from one. And uh, he lives, uh, he's dead now, he died in 1986, but uh, he lived in Houma, uh, uh, Louisiana. And uh, Stan Friedman, who was uh, giving his, at the time, he was giving his UFOs are real lectures all over the country, at, mostly at colleges and universities. And he was down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, giving a talk about UFOs are real when uh, one of the, uh, uh, he was interviewed by a local TV station down there. And uh, after the interview, the producer said, well, you know, there's a guy who uh, lives not too far from here uh, named Jesse Marcel. And he says he handled pieces of a flying saucer back in 1947, one that crashed in New Mexico. So before uh, Stan Friedman left town, he called Jesse Marcel on the telephone. At, I guess it was from the airport and uh, briefly interviewed him and uh, was so impressed that he uh, hooked up with uh, William Moore, who had just written a book about the Philadelphia experiment. It was, uh, if you remember that, it was about a, a U.S. destroyer during World War II that they, that uh, in the Philadelphia Navy Yard, they did some experiment on it to make it disappear. Well, William Moore had a best-selling book about that, so. He hooked up with William Moore, and they uh, thus began the civilian investigation of the Roswell incident. And their first book, that was 1978. That was 1978. They hooked up. And two years later, 1980, their first book, uh, the first Roswell book came out called The Roswell Incident. Well, the authors are listed as William Moore and Charles Berlitz, the language guy. Well, they didn't, uh, Stan Friedman was the investigator along with Moore, but they figured that at that time Stan didn't have a, wasn't as well known as Charles Berlitz because of Berlitz's uh, language uh, uh, primers. And also uh, Berlitz had just had a best-selling book about the Bermuda Triangle. So he was well known for his book about the Bermuda Triangle. And William Moore was well known because of his book on the Philadelphia Experiment. So they they hooked up uh, uh, Berlitz with Moore, and out came the Roswell incident, the book that I... Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durban Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Told you that really blew me away. And uh, that started the, a lot of people, well, not a lot, but some of us uh, became really interested in that case. The the original book, as I understand it, by Berlitz and Moore, was based on an interview, interviews of 60 witnesses, 60 first and second-hand witnesses. You compare that with uh, the witnesses that uh, Don Schmidt and I have uh, put on the record, uh, which is 600, and you can see how far, uh, you know, we have gotten uh, because... You know, after the 50th anniversary, I guess they, a lot of a lot of the investigators figure, well, there's not much more to learn. Well, we uh, we sort of proved that wrong. Yeah, and I, w- I wanted to ask because this is one of the uh, you know when when you hear people talk about or they criticize the case, they'll say, I mean, if you know, this is just one of the uh, things I've heard thrown out there. If these were such advanced, you know, ETs and alien craft then how were they brought down? I mean, uh, there's there's speculation that AAA was fired at them by the base, uh, the lightning storms, uh, that sort of thing. But, you know, y- you do get that thrown out there that if these are such advanced civilizations and craft, then uh, why were they able to be brought down? That's my first question. The second question is, the, uh, was there more than one craft? We get this question all the time. How can an advanced civilization who constructs a, uh, let's call it a flying saucer that could travel between the stars, how, how can it come to Earth and crash? Is that, yeah, is that that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. That's Again, this is a devil's advocate kind of thing because you hear that thrown out there. and yeah, uh, they, they, throw, they throw it out there, but here's the thing, uh, Curry. Anything that's manufactured, any uh, metal, any amalgam, uh, every one of them has a tensile strength beyond which, if it's exceeded, it will come apart. Well, obviously, uh, the flying saucer that crashed actually blew up in, in, in the air. It exploded, and it came apart. And uh, it ex- whatever we believe that was struck by a bolt of lightning that exceeded the tensile strength of the outer shell of the craft. And that's that's why it came apart, because in July of in July in New Mexico, it's their monsoon season, and I've been down there during that. Boy, you you cannot believe the the lightning storms they have. They are brutal, and uh, it was either an internal explosion of the craft itself, or uh, a lightning strike by one of those uh, humongous bolts of lightning. And it caused the ship 
uh, that whatever it was constructed of, and we think it was mostly titanium, uh, it exceeded the, the ship's tensile strength and it came apart. Now, uh, do you believe there was more than one crash, as some of the researchers have suggested? No, uh, that that that's one of the early. Uh, uh, see that early on. Here's how that came about. Uh, when uh, Moore and Friedman were researching the Roswell crash, they were, uh, which occurred near the town of Corona, New Mexico. They were not aware of any uh, site uh, near there that might have had bodies. The only story at that time, we're talking about uh, the 1978 to 1980 time frame, the only story they had at that time involving alleged little bodies that uh, might have crashed with a UFO was the so-called uh, Barney Barnett story. And... Uh, occurred on the plains of San Augustine uh, near uh, uh, Socorro, New Mexico. And uh, Barney Barnett was a agricultural, uh, en- I guess, a, a uh, agricultural engineer. He worked for the U.S. government, and uh, he did a lot of field work uh, on the, you know drainage and things like that out in the desert. And uh, he said that... Uh, one day he was driving back from a, a town in western New Mexico called Daddle back to Socorro. And uh, I've been out there. It's very flat. Uh, you can see for miles. And he said that his eye was caught by a flash of light uh, glinting off of uh, the, uh, the sun, glinting off of a piece of something out there in the desert. And he went out there, and I've been there. Uh, and he said it was a crash flying saucer, and there were little bodies around. And uh, that, uh, so Socorro, or, or the Plains of St. Augustine, where Barney Barnett uh, located, allegedly, this, this uh, crashed UFO with uh, little bodies, was about 150 miles west of the crash site near the town of Corona uh, that everybody agreed was involved in the Roswell incident. So they just uh, amalgamated the, the alleged Socorro crash with the on the plains of St. Augustine with the, the crash near Corona. And uh, that's, that's, how, that's what they went to press with in the, the uh, Roswell incident. And that's your, there's your two-disc two story. Well, we, we investigated the Socorro, and then that's how I got involved in it. Was this, we were looking at the Socorro part of it, and uh, it turns out, that Barney Barnett did not start telling his story about the crash, and he apparently told his boss, a fellow by the name of Flex Stanley, uh, right after he got back to the to the office. I mean, after he's out, he discovers the flying saucer. He's kicked off the area by the military. He goes back to the office, and he tells his boss, Flex Stanley, about it. And Flex Stanley says, you're crazy. Well, this occurred in 1950 this conversation occurred in 1950 and the and the uh, somehow the uh, moore and uh, uh, friedman brought it into the 1947 story maybe they didn't know about the when when uh, barnett was telling it but uh, it was really in 1950 that uh, this socorro thing took place on the plains 
near the plane, on the plane to St. Augustine. So that's how they came up with this. Uh, oh, well, two discs crashed in the air. Uh, one came down near Corona, and the other came down on the plains of San Augustine. It never happened. It never happened, at least in 1947. If it did happen in Socorro or the plains of San Augustine, it would have been uh, 1950 or three years after the uh, Roswell incident. And that, that's how that came about. Interesting. And I want to do, uh, you've done all this research on the case. Uh, what have you been able to glean from your research about uh, recovery of the craft and where it may have been transported to? Well, we know we know for a fact that uh, all of the wreckage and the bodies uh, first came to the base seven miles south of Roswell, Roswell Army Airfield, later known as Walker Air Force Base, and today known as the Roswell Industrial Air Center. And that it was all, uh, there was a hangar there called Hangar P as in Paul Three. It's now known as Building 80, 84. It's still there. I've been inside. Uh, I did an in- interview with uh, Larry King inside there one, one summer day. <laughs> and uh, it's still there. So all of the wreckage and the bodies initially went there. Ultimately, uh, we're talking about 1947, it went to Wright Field. It was called Wright Field, which later became Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. That's where it all went. And uh, uh, we believe uh, in nineteen, the early 1980s from someone who was worked in the uh, Foreign Technology Division there, which is where, under where the, all of this stuff would have gone, uh, he said that the, it was tran- then transferred to Area 51 in Nevada in the early 80s. And uh, where it is today, uh, I can tell you uh, that it's in private, so-called private hands. Now, by private hands, we're talking about Lockheed Martin, Rand Corporation, the Bigelow, the Bigelow outfit uh, in Nevada. That's where all that stuff we believe is today. And uh, the on his deathbed, a commander of the Foreign Technology Division at, uh, at Wright-Patterson, uh, his name was George Weinbrenner, Colonel George Weinbrenner on his deathbed, said that the five alien bodies from Roswell were uh, in uh, Utah, at a location in Utah, and that would be Dugway. They're at Dugway in Utah, the bodies. But all of the actual wreckage, uh, they're uh, in private hands. We know who holds the key. I won't give you his name, but we know who holds the key. And uh, we're talking Rand Corporation, Lockheed Martin, uh, Bigelow, uh, maybe uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, maybe, not sure. But uh, that's where it is as we speak. Interesting. And, and I know I mentioned uh, as we were getting started here, retired uh, and he deceased and retired uh, uh, Army Colonel Philip Corsell, who came out with the book Day After Roswell. Uh, and uh, in the book, he talked about how a lot of the materials that were recovered from Roswell were farmed out to uh, local industry for reverse engineering. I'm curious if you, in any of your research, whether you've um, uncovered any information about whether any of that took place. Well, if you're asking about back engineering, it started a year year after the crash in 1948 
uh, a lot of the wreckage consisted of this, what we call memory metal. It's a metal that you can uh, deform in any way you can. You can take a sledgehammer to it. You can wad it up in your hand. It feels like you have nothing in your hand. And you open your hand, and it'll just unfurl itself without a crease. You can't cut it, burn it, scratch it, or do anything to it. So the Air Force at Wright Field, later Wright-Patterson, was very interested in this particular uh, metal that apparently covered the outer shell of this flying saucer. And there was a lot of, a lot of it. So they uh, sent a project to the Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, right down the road from Dayton, uh, to try to first find out what this stuff was made of and then to try to back-engineer it. And uh, they did that. They did, uh, they did all kinds of tests. And ultimately, in 1962, uh, they unveiled something they, that they called, uh, and you can buy this, uh, you can go on the Internet, type in the word nitinol, that's uh, uh, the letter N as in Nancy, the letter I, the letter T as in Tom, the letter I, uh, the letter N is a Nancy O-L. Nitinol, type that into your browser and see what comes up. And that's our best attempt at re-engineer, back-engineering the memory metal. It's not as good as the original because the, the original was indestructible, except uh, when it exceeded its pencil strength or when a lightning bolt struck it. But it's, uh, it's used in the space program. It's used uh, sometimes, you know, if you have eyeglasses where, you know, you have the frames or you can bend them in all shapes and they won't break, that's nitinol. But uh, that comes from Roswell. Now, there are other things that, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, you just mentioned him. Uh, the, the, boy, you know, I'm losing the track of the name. Yeah, uh, Colonel, Colonel Phil Corso. Corso, Corso. Uh, he mentioned a, a number of other things like uh, night vision goggles and all that sort of stuff. I don't know about that. Transistors is another one. It seems to me, and there's there's a lot of evidence that a lot of these things were already in development at the time of Roswell. The the only one that I'm really sure of, because we even ha we have the update reports on on the on the progress from Wright Patterson back to the Air Force on this project to develop this uh, memory metal. We have those reports, and that's the only one I'm really sure of. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your research uh, uh, into the bodies recovered. Now, there's been mention of five bodies, uh, small in size. Can you talk a little bit about more about what you gleaned uh, from your research on the physical characteristics of these bodies recovered? Yes, uh, I, I'm I'd like to mention our uh, book that just came out. I sent you a, a PDF copy of the um, Roswell, the chronological pictorial, which is the time frame uh, from the crash up into the present of the Roswell case. In there, you'll, there's a page that has all of the uh, illustrations of what the bodies look like. And the one that I uh, like the best, is that uh, even before the military got there back in 47, uh, a fireman that worked for the Roswell Fire Department named, uh, uh, it was Frankie Rowe's father, uh, Dan Dwyer. 
boy, old, you know, uh, the farther away I get, the, I'm having trouble rem- remembering some of these names. <laughs> uh, Dan Dwyer was a fireman for the city of Roswell, and they, they when the when the phone call came in about the crash, he got out there even before the the fire de- uh, company decided to go out, and they were actually uh, prevented from going out by the. Uh, uh, mayor of Roswell or the city manager and the military. But uh, Dan Dwyer got out there before the military got there, and uh, he saw everything. So when he gets back home at night, you know, it was, okay, hi, Daddy, well, what did you do today, you know? And he said, well, I, I, I found the flying saucer out north of town. And at first, you know, they wanted to, a description of what it looked like. And then he says, you know, there were bodies there. And uh, there was one, uh, one of the beings, uh, they didn't call them aliens, they just called them beings. One of the beings was still alive, walking around. Oh, my goodness, they were flabbergasted. Well, what did it look like? Well, he just used one term. It was called child of the earth. And he didn't give a description. He just said child of the earth. Well, in the book that uh, the PDF, I sent you the PDF copy, we uh, did a uh, composite. Uh, I took a photograph of the child of the earth, which is actually a land. It's a uh, also called a potato bug, a Jerusalem cricket. It, it's a it's a you know a, like a large insect uh, it, that lives in the desert. In this uh, certainly in New Mexico, they know about it. Me being a city slicker, I never heard of it. So uh, we took a. Uh, I, you know, I went on the internet and uh, dialed up a, a uh, child of the earth, uh, scanned the photograph of the head because they call it the child of the earth because the head on this uh, land uh, scorpion—that's what it is—a land scorpion, a cricket, something like that. You know, I'm no insect expert. Uh, looks like it. The top of the the, the head of this uh, insect. It has markings on it, like when a child is born. When it's first born, you can see these markings on the top of the skull as black lines because this, the bones of a skull have not fused yet. So on these markings on the top of the head of this land uh, insect called the child of the earth has these markings, and that's why he said child of the earth. So in this book, our latest book, uh, we have a composite. Don Schmidt drew the... Uh, the body of the alien, of what they you know, was described, and we uh, juxtaposed, we put the uh, head of the child of the earth on top. And for me, that is the best representation of what the Roswell aliens look like. Uh, the most salient feature is the lard, the oversized. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Head. The oversized head. Uh, sort of heart shaped a bit or pear shaped. Inverted pear. Uh, wide set eyes. Slightly slanted. Not those big wraparound things that you see in those abduction stories. But slightly slanted. Uh, two little holes where the nose would be, no no really nose. A little slit about one inch wide where the mouth would be, and uh, the mouth doesn't go anywhere like into a, uh, uh, it doesn't go into a stomach or anything like that. It just doesn't go anywhere. It's a rudimentary thing. A little slit where the mouth would be. Uh, two little holes where the ears would be, and uh, sort of pinkish, pinkish gray if, if it's still alive. And apparently when they die, they, they start uh, turning, uh, 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 they were, some of them were described as uh, almost black, charred, like, like they, they decay fast. Well, that's what they look like. Three and a half to four feet tall. Three and a half to four feet tall, very large head. And uh, that's how I, and the features I've given you, no hair on the head, no hair on the head. And uh, four fingers, four very slender fingers, and we presume four toes, but no one has ever described the toes for us. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what they look like. Any uh, any talk of uh, the way they communicated? Yes. Oh, thank you for asking that. I forgot. Uh, we have two, two firsthand witnesses about communication. The first one was Dan Dwyer, the fireman. And uh, after he said, "Child of the Earth," and, and they said, "Well, did did you talk? Did it talk to you? Did you talk to it?" He said, "Yes, we t- we talked to one another. We communicated, but not like we're not like I'm talking now by moving our mouth and having words come out. We talked to one another in our heads, like like uh, extrasensory, for, you know, ESP." He said, "We talked to one another in our heads." Well, what, what did it say? And he said, well, that's interesting because I, he said, I was concerned about it because the thing crashed here. He's wandering around. And the alien or the being told Dan Dwyer in, in his head, don't worry about me. I accept my fate. My, my uh, comrades are dead. My ship is uh, crashed. There's nothing anybody can do. I accept my fate. Uh, don't worry about me. That was basically the message in so many words that he got from the being. Well, the second account comes from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base because that's where the the being was taken. We believe it was kept for maybe a week at Roswell where they uh, went, you know, they they did some, you know, make sure it was okay and all that sort of stuff and maybe tried to communicate, probably communicated with it. But it eventually was flown to Wright-Patterson 
And the following spring, in the April of 1948, the Air War College class of 1947-48 uh, uh, spent a week at Wright. They flew them to, uh, there were about 90 of them, they flew them to uh, Montgomery, from Montgomery, Alabama, where the Air War College is, to Wright Field to uh, ostensibly... Uh, be instructed on administration of uh, uh, military matters. Well, this one day, there was nothing on this. It's interesting. There was nothing on the schedule. But our, our firsthand witness, a uh, former World War II fighter pilot uh, from the Marines named uh, uh, Marion Black Mac Magruder. They called him Black Mac uh, because he was a night fighter. And... Uh, so he, he was, uh, we get the story from his son that uh, he was uh, flown to, to right field with the others. They were taken into this room, and, and they're all standing around. They, they may have been in a hangar, uh, but that's what it sounds like. They, they were in some room in a hangar. We think it was probably hangar 23, which is the, the, uh, the hangar that they all refer to as hangar 18. And so they're standing around, well, okay, what are we doing here? Everybody's, you know, they're, and it caught, they wheel in this strange wreckage. They put it on a table, and uh, what do you fellas think about this? And they're all looking at this strange wreckage. It was all this memory metal that I told you about. All this memory metal. They're all handling it, and they said, what is this stuff? Where did you get it? And the guy said, you know, the, the uh, fellow that brought it in, we, we got it from a a crash of a flying saucer that occurred in New Mexico last year, which would have been 1947. So a lot of them had never even heard of the crash. So they're taken into another room, an adjoining room. And there uh, you've heard of two-way mirrors. You, know, you, can see, you can see what's going on through it, but the person on the other side, all they see is a mirror. And so they'll go over there, and they all look through. They said, look through this mirror here. And, well, there sits, or uh, I guess it was sitting, but it could have been standing, or I don't know if it was doing handstands or uh, doing the Macarena. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was the uh, live, we call it the live one, the, the one that was recovered from Roswell. It was still alive, and it's, what it was doing, I, I don't know. might have been doing push-ups. I, I don't know. But the, the Marion Magruder said, uh, you know, uh, I had an instant mental connection with it. Uh, we didn't talk to one another, but I felt great sympathy for it. Oh, I just had this connection with it. And I was feeling its human qualities, not its alien qualities, but its human qualities of sympathy. And uh, they never spoke to one another, but that's the, it came over him, this, this great sense of sympathy for the human qualities that he was getting from this creature and uh, those are the two uh, the only two stories we have about uh, communication interesting stuff though really is uh, what were you able to glean in your research about what these craft may have looked like or craft rather not crafts I think we're talking about well, one here yeah the, the Roswell craft Back in the uh, early 90s, this one so-called witness, he became, uh, we, we finally determined that he was a disinformation specialist. 
keep it at this. Uh, he claimed to have been a high-level personage in the recovery effort, and uh, he turned out to be a phony. His name was Frank Kaufman. And he put out the thing, oh, it was wedge-shaped, like the head of a uh, uh, deer slayer-type arrow, you know, the triangular-shaped uh, craft. And uh, I personally never believed the guy about anything he said, but uh, that, that's, you know, sort of lame, I guess, after after the fact. But we he finally confessed to us, us because we said, okay, Frank, why did you do it? We don't believe you. He says, well, it, it got out of control. And uh, because all the media, news media interviewed him, and he became sort of a go-to guy when they wanted to interview people about Roswell. And uh, some of the things we said, he said to us, we we would look at one another and say, yeah, is this guy, what is it? Where is this guy coming from? That that's not true." Well, anyway, he put out the the picture that it was wedge shaped, but the the problem, uh, Perry, is that the the ship. Uh, the outer of the outer uh, structure, the, what the ship looked like, uh, was totally disintegrated. But some of the some of the pieces of wreckage that were not of the memory metal type, but of the stiff metal that you couldn't bend to do anything, they were all curved slightly. So we believe that the ship was was actually a saucer, flying a uh, circular disc. Uh, the inner cabin. Remain withstood the the um, blast, the explosion, and came to rest uh, 35 miles further east uh, of from the debris field where all the the memory metal was. The inner cabin came to rest, and that was that was uh, a tear shaped, uh, you know, sort of uh, egg shaped, and uh, that was the inner cabin or, or some sort of escape pod. We don't know which. But uh, that was intact. But we believe that the outer shell was, in fact, a uh, disc disc shaped. Uh, interesting. Um, and uh, I, are you still active actively investigating uh, at this point, or are you pretty much gathered what you feel like you're going to gather in terms of facts and? Well, here here here's the thing, Kerry, uh, is that uh, all of the first hands uh, witnesses that we know of are gone and we have uh, in the 30 years that i've been on the case and my uh, co-author's been on the case we have really uh constructed the framework of the story and all of the witnesses that we have interviewed they all fit within that framework so we 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 don't know how much anything how how anything different uh, anybody would have to say, but occasionally we we do we do have uh, new information come to us, which we will uh, investigate, which we are doing. But our next book that comes out in uh, two months is called uh, Roswell: The Ultimate Cold Case Closed. So we uh, we have basically. Uh, in the process of withdrawing from the case because there's, you know, there's, uh, if we get a lead uh, or if we have time on our hands uh, to do, you know, chase down a couple of names, we'll we'll do it. But the the main the main activity is done uh, because uh, all the witnesses, uh, even the children, are dying now. Of, of the first hand witnesses, 
even their children and now are passing on. So, but but here's the other thing. I'll leave you. I'll leave you with this. Uh, the one thing that we're missing is a piece of physical evidence, a piece of physical evidence. And by that I mean uh, either a piece of that, uh, the stiff part uh, that you can't, you know, the outer shell or that memory metal. We're lo- really hoping for a piece of memory metal because uh, you can, you don't have to send that away to the uh, uh, analysis people and, and have everybody forget about it. You can hold that up in front of a TV camera and say, look at, look at this. You can put it through its paces, and we still don't have anything like that. And that's what we're hoping for. We know there are pieces out there. Certainly uh, all of the military guys that uh, cleaned up the crash site, some of them we know put, put little pieces in their pockets, for sure. And the civilians that got there first, well, that's what they do when they go to the crash sites is they would take souvenirs. So we know that there are a few pieces at least out there. We're hoping at least one of them comes forward. Uh, with with one of those pieces of uh, memory metal. So that's what we're missing to really uh, put the final nail in this coffin. Interesting. So uh, when do you project the uh, the last book here in the series will come out? Well, the, the final book is uh, uh, Roswell, uh, uh, The Ultimate Cold Case Closed, and that will be out uh, in about two months. The book that's currently out that came out couple weeks ago was the chronological pictorial which the people who have uh, read it who have it uh, it, there's nothing like it there's nothing like it it should be the companion to every Roswell book that has ever been written even our own and it's a fantastic book and uh, I really enjoyed putting it together and uh, that's where we're that's where we're currently at uh, uh, one of the chapters in the, the book that's coming out uh, in two months is, is uh, called uh, Touched by Roswell, and it's about all the famous people that the case touched one way or another. And you'd be surprised how many there are and who they are. And we're thinking about every time I think we've got the last Roswell book done, uh, we get an idea for another one. And uh, we're thinking of doing a complete book about all the famous people because we only have one chapter in Case Closed that's about uh, the people touched by Roswell. We're thinking about doing a more in-depth book about the people touched by Roswell. And uh, that's at the thinking stage right now. So every time I think we're done, where there's another book uh, on the horizon. Wow. Even after Case even after case closed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, the work just continues to go on and on. Now, uh, if I remember correctly, you're a speaker at the Roswell UFO event uh, in July. Is that correct? Yes. The, uh, the Every July, I've been a speaker there for about 20 years now. The uh, UFO, the uh, Roswell Festival, every, uh, every July. Uh, this year... Uh, we don't know if it's canceled or not. Right now it's sort of uh, in limbo until we get a final designation of whether it's a go or a no. So uh, we, we don't know right now if that's going to, to, to go or not. We, we're waiting for the, the uh, 
word from the museum, the International Museum down there. I am speaking later in the month, and I haven't heard that it's been canceled, but I will be speaking at a NASA convention in Santa Fe in uh, late July of this year. And then in October, I'll be speaking in uh, Santa Cruz at another event. But uh, I'm really looking forward to these. And uh, you're actually uh, you're actually uh, the first uh, interview that uh, I've done on the uh, the new book that's currently out, the Chronological Pictorial. Wow! So, cool. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I really appreciate you spending the time with me. These are certainly crazy times. I'm, I'm hoping and I'm, I'm sure we're going to get through all this uh, and come out the other end. Um, thank you so much for all the research you've done on this. Uh, it's, it's still, to me, probably one of the, the most fascinating cases and if not the most important case in, in UFO history. And uh, so it's really great. I'm looking forward to that book you're going to be coming out with that kind of the case closed book. Uh, I think that'll be an interesting one. I'm looking forward to to getting a copy of that and reading that. And uh, so we'll look forward to that. And uh, once again, Tom, thank you so much for spending the time with me. And uh, have a great night. And hey, uh, be safe. Okay. So uh, big thanks to Tom for spending the time to talk with me uh, about what I think is still just as relevant of a case now as it was 20, 30 years ago. And uh, I really uh, enjoyed having that discussion with Tom and uh, hearing about what he's gleaned from over 30 years of his research into the case. And uh, the other thing I want to mention is uh, if you go over to the website, one other thing you can do is you can sign up to receive the Passion for the Paranormal newsletter. And uh, real simple, it's right there on the front page, and you just put your email address in there. We're not going to share your email address uh, with anybody else. Uh, it's simply to receive our newsletter. So I hope you'll go over there and sign up to receive the newsletter. And uh, don't miss next episode when I'm going to have Rob Gutro joining me. And Rob is a medium and uh, has written many books about the paranormal and his experience as a medium and uh, in paranormal investigating. So uh, make sure you join me for uh, next episode. It's going to be a great one. Thank you so much for tuning into the show, everybody. Stay safe. These are crazy times, but we will get through it. Stay safe, and uh, once again, thank you for tuning in. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.